From the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzer with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 28th. Today, the promises that Biden kept and did not keep during his first 100 days, plus the art of renegotiating a deal. So we are about to come up to this big milestone for a new president, which is the 100 days milestone for President Biden. Tell me, why do we care about the first 100 days of a presidency? Biden has set this 100 days as a marker for when he's begun to make significant progress on any number of the largest issues that face him. Cleve Woodson is a White House correspondent for The Post. He has been thinking about what these last three months could mean for the future of the Biden presidency. For generations of president, it's always served as the moment where they say we should begin to see the effects of their presidency, not just kind of holdover effects from previous presidencies. And so as we're reaching this marker, we are expecting Biden to give a pretty significant speech to Congress, correct? Yeah, he gives a joint address to Congress on Wednesday night, and that's where he's going to tell Congress and tell the nation everything that he's accomplished, but also sort of lay the groundwork and a framework for what's going to follow. So when we think back to the promises that Biden made on the campaign trail, the reasons why he was elected, what are the things that he was able to achieve and the positives that he's going to be talking about in this first 100 days speech? So what Biden promised to do and what he made good on in those first couple of weeks is, you know, he massively scaled up the vaccine rollout. But I'm absolutely convinced that in 100 days we can change the course of the disease and change life in America for the better. At first it was 100 million and then it was, you know, 150 million and and then he announced it would be 200 million in his first 100 days. He also worked to increase economic relief. He put $1,400 into the bank accounts of most Americans. This is money directly in people's pockets. They need it. We need to target that money. Making good on a campaign promise to get, I think, a total of $2,000 in economic relief. There were also efforts to increase unemployment benefits or to surge money to state and local governments in order to further increase the economy. It gets needed resources of state and local governments to prevent layoffs of essential personnel, firefighters, nurses, the folks are school teachers, sanitation workers. He's going to tell Congress, he's going to tell the nation, look, I told you I would surge the amount of coronavirus vaccine doses and, and look, I've done it. And more importantly, he said that the United States would be in a better place regarding the pandemic 100 days after he was inaugurated than when he started. And I think he just he gets to tout that because he did that. So then where is President Biden falling short? There's a couple things that remain as challenges and struggles. Shortly after he was inaugurated, Biden said, look, equity is going to be a part of everything that we do. 
and that he's going to sort of work extremely hard. All of government is going to work extremely hard to get rid of these fissures and this inequity and in, in, in the economy and the criminal justice system and all of that stuff. We need to open the promise of America to every American. And that means we need to make the issue of racial equity not just an issue for any one department of government. It has to be the business of the whole of government. That's why I issued in one of the first days my whole government executive order that will for the first time advance equity for all throughout our federal policies and institutions. And Biden signed, you know, a series of executive orders on equity. He's done other things, but the largest issues affecting equity in this nation endure. Hmm. There are states across the nation that are passing more uh, prohibitive restrictions on voting. And so a lot of the advocates and activists that I've spoke to say that they really expected Biden to deliver more when it comes to making America a more equitable place. And, And they're really hoping to see in this speech or in the coming days how he's going to deliver on that promise. I also want to talk about immigration, especially because it was such a defining part of the Trump administration. Many people thought that Biden was going to come in and be such a marked and immediate difference from how Trump approached immigration. Thousands of unaccompanied children are now crossing into the United States from Mexico, a surge that has been growing since Biden ended the Trump administration policy that turned children back at the border. A key test for U.S. President Joe Biden. He faces mounting criticism for failing to respond to the migrant crisis at the border with Mexico. Biden made a campaign promise to treat them humanely, but the numbers of It's now seeming like it's going to be one of the big defining challenges of his presidency. A lot of what Biden has done, initially at least, is undoing the things that Trump had done on immigration. He ended the travel ban, for example, on his first day in his office. He protected people in the DACA program from being deported. He protected immigrants who served in the U.S. military from deportation. He's also worked to end the prolonged detention of migrants. And he tried to freeze deportations for 100 days to put deportations on a 100-day pause, but that was blocked by a federal judge in Texas. So he has he has made strides. The difficulty or the hard part is that a lot of substantive action on immigration has to come from Congress. And it means that Biden has to use his abilities as a persuader or his bully pulpit in order to try to get immigration reform through a fractured Congress. In some ways, what you're describing strikes me as a theme in what we're seeing in terms of successes and failures of this administration so far, that when it comes to things that Biden and his administration can do more unilaterally, they have in many ways been doing those things or been able to meet the promises that they said. But also part of his whole reputation coming into office as president was this idea that he could work together with Congress, that he could be the man of the Senate and he could make legislation happen. And though the coronavirus relief bill obviously is a significant piece of legislation, it does feel like in all these different ways, they are so far coming up short in the hopes of being able to actually pass significant laws that they had hoped to pass. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Biden has spent the bulk of his adult life 
in the U.S. Senate. And he ran as somebody who knows Congress, who can get things done, who somebody who can cut through the rancor and the partisanship. But so far, the only thing that he's kind of gotten through Congress, while significant, is, you know, the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill that passed basically on party lines. And so that's one of the bigger questions that looms for Biden in the 101st day and beyond is when are Americans going to start seeing the person that is the deal maker or that is able to build on the foundation of past relationships in order to get legislation passed? Or is he somebody that is unable to cut through the partisanship that we we see every day in Congress? Hmm. And I'm curious, Cleve, for you, as a White House reporter who has been covering this administration for the last 100 days, what has your reaction been to these successes and failures? Or or is there anything surprising about what you have seen in terms of how this administration has been operating so far? Spent a lot of time last year with activists and people pushing for change. And one of the things that Biden has said is, look, I'm going to help bring about that change. He selected a black and Asian woman as his vice president. He has a diverse cabinet. But one of the things that I'm really looking hard to see is whether that goes beyond listening, whether that goes beyond making people feel heard. Like, I think Biden and I think his administration has been really good at bringing these voices that have been walled off from the Trump administration, bringing those folks literally to the table, literally to talk to them and and to have a voice in the White House. But there's going to come a point where people begin to say, look, we know you hear us. We know that, you know, we have a, a voice at the table, but when are you going to actually deliver for us? And I think that the 100-day mark, while sort of, an, you know, an arbitrary, artificial moment, is really a moment of reflection for the Biden administration and for those groups that are pushing the Biden administration to do more, to say, you know, have you delivered on the things that you've said you would? Or have you just kind of made us feel heard while sort of not bringing us the things that we need to advance America? Cleve Woodson is a White House correspondent for The Post. The story was produced by Sabi Robinson. Biden's address to Congress is taking place on Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern time. If you want to watch the speech live, The Post is going to be airing it at WashingtonPost.com with updates and analysis from our reporters. And on Thursday, you will be able to hear a recap on The Post politics podcast, Can He Do That? So subscribe and listen. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
This week, a third round of indirect negotiations have resumed between the U.S. and Iran. The goal is to figure out a plan for the U.S. to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal that President Trump abandoned. National security reporter Karen DeYoung has been following these negotiations very closely. The idea is to figure out, since both sides, Iran and the United States, say they want to return to compliance with the deal, how you do that. And so what they've been talking about is how they can come up with a sort of simultaneous sequential return to the agreement. In Iran's case, to go back on the various violations it has made since the United States dropped out and imposed more sanctions on it, and the United States in lifting those sanctions. So this is basically all part of an effort of like, for lack of a better term, like a makeup between the U.S. and Iran, right? Like they're both trying to come back to the table after everything that transpired during the Trump administration? Like, how would you describe what this process is right now? Sure, but it's not to be nice to each other or because they like each other. (laughs) Uh, For the United States, the Biden administration believes that the original deal, which was signed in 2015... Today, after two years of negotiations, the United States, together with our international partners has achieved something that decades of animosity has not. A comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Actually prevented Iran from making progress toward what it said were Iranian ambitions to develop a nuclear weapon. The Biden administration and many others maintained that because President Trump quit the deal... I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. It allowed Iran to say, well, why should we comply anymore? Because you're not complying. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. Today's action sends a critical message. The United States no longer makes empty threats. From Iran's point of view, what Trump called his maximum pressure campaign of sanctions against Iran has been devastating. Its economy is close to collapse, has a lot of trouble exporting its oil, it is no longer welcome on the international financial system that the United States dollar basically controls. So Iran wants to uh, get back what it believes it lost when Trump left the deal. Not only did Trump impose the sanctions that had been lifted as part of the deal, over the last three years, he has imposed about 1,500 other sanctions. Remind us, like, what was the original nuclear deal? What was it seeking to do? And and what were the kind of basic terms that everybody who was a part of this deal agreed to? It was seeking to limit any kind of nuclear program in Iran based on a belief that, although Iran denied it, Iran was trying to build a nuclear weapon. And so the United States, which along with the United Nations and others in the international community, had imposed a series of sanctions against Iran 
said that, well, okay, we will lift the sanctions if you stop what you're doing in a very verifiable way and let international monitors verify it, then we will lift the sanctions. So the Iranians agreed to sharply limit what they were doing. And remind me, which countries were originally involved in this deal? Britain, France, Germany, Russia, China, Iran, and the United States, with the participation of the European Union as a sort of um, moderator for talks. And of course, President Trump pulled the U.S. out of this deal. What was his rationale at the time? His rationale was that Iran was cheating, which the International Atomic Energy Agency, charged with monitoring and verifying its compliance, said it was not. Nuclear activities of Iran uh, have reduced a lot after the JCPOA. So uh, we have a more powerful verification uh, regime to monitor and verify the reduced nuclear activities. Uh, That is why uh, we say uh, this is a significant gain uh, for verification. Now, there were other things that the administration wanted that it charged that the Obama administration had put to one side. They included the development of ballistic missiles, uh, Iran's use of of proxy militias in places like Iraq and Syria and Yemen. So it sounds like Trump was saying at the time, uh, essentially, that the Obama administration was too soft on Iran, that he was going to be harder by pulling out of this deal, by replacing sanctions against Iran. But did it have the effect that he had intended? Um No, it didn't have the results that he intended. Certainly, the Iranian economy and the Iranian people have suffered a great deal under this. Iran has not stopped its ballistic missile program. It has not stopped its support for proxy wars. And despite extensive U.S. sanctions that have greatly curtailed its oil exports, its biggest source of income, it hasn't stopped exporting oil, much of which goes to China. Can you paint me a picture of what these negotiations actually look like? Sure. The Europeans, Russia, China, the European Union and Iranian representatives are in a very big room around a big square table in one of those old ornate hotels in Vienna. And the U.S., team, which is headed by Robert Malley, are someplace else. The Iranians will say something. The Europeans will go to wherever the Americans are and say what was said. The Americans will say something back, and the Europeans will go back and say it to the Iranians. Wait, so they're not even in the same room? And they just have, no, like, they're not, the Europeans kind they're of— No, they're not in the same room, because the Iranians have refused to speak directly to the Americans. And so they literally have to have someone, like, running between these rooms or these hotels to deliver messages. Right, and and the, and the European members have, have taken up that task. Now, one of the first things they did was to appoint working groups to to deal with with more specifics beyond the sort of you lift sanctions, you pull back your nuclear program. 
one of the working groups is looking at what exactly Iran would have to do to return to compliance. And one of them is looking at what the United States would have to do. And certainly at the State Department, they've, they've spent many, many, many weeks kind of meticulously going through all of these sanctions. The United States agreed not only to lift all nuclear sanctions, but to return to essentially the spirit of the agreement, that Iran would get the benefits that it was promised. And those benefits are economic. Well, it seems like the situation was already complicated. And then you add to that the fact that one of Iran's key nuclear sites was the target of an attack. Yes, this was an attack that essentially stopped the electricity in Natanz, which is one of Iran's key nuclear facilities where these centrifuges are enriching uranium. It's not clear whether it was a cyber attack, but it did some significant damage. And it appeared from all reports, although it was not acknowledged directly, that Israel had done it. Israel, which is very opposed to uh, return to the nuclear deal by the United States. Our concern, of course, is that the militant Islamic State of Iran um, is going to receive uh, a sure path to nuclear weapons. Many of the restrictions that were supposed to prevent it from getting there will be lifted. This is uh, a bad mistake uh, of historic proportions. So then how does that make this situation of negotiating with Iran even more complicated? I mean, it seems like the U.S. was sort of going along a path and then Israel, its ally, kind of derails that. Well, the interesting thing is I don't think it has affected it very much. Hmm. Um, You know, the Iranians did not blame the Americans. The Americans said they knew nothing about it and weren't involved. We, of course, have seen the reports of the incident uh, at the Natanz enrichment facility. The U.S. was not involved uh, in any manner. Uh, We have nothing to add on speculation about the causes uh, or the impacts. I will say— Is that true? I I don't know if it's true, but it's convenient for both Iran and the United States to proceed on the basis that it is true. The Israelis presumably did their thing. The Iranians did their thing in response, which was to increase the level of enrichment, the uh, uranium that they were turning into fuel. And everybody kind of said, "Okay, let's get back to the talks. I'm curious, what do you think is at stake here for the Biden administration, even beyond the U.S.'s relationship with Iran? You know, one of the things that's at stake is whether he can convince enough people in Congress that this is the right path to be on. There are many people, many lawmakers of both parties who think it's a bad idea. There's probably an equal number who think, yes, this is the way we should be going. Public opinion polls say, yes, by and large, this is the way we should be going, that we should get back into this deal. The administration has promised that it will consult with Congress, that it will let them know everything that's happened, that it will not give away the store to the Iranians. Um, Congress is very anxious, as it was with Obama, to put in place some kind of 
stopgap where the administration actually has to come and ask Congress if it's okay to do this. The administration very much does not want to do that. And then I think, assuming they actually get the deal back in place, then how quickly they can move toward what they say they want to do, which is to start follow-on talks with Iran that will change some of the terms of the original deal in terms of when various parts of it expire. And when you say change, do you mean change them to make them stricter or a little bit more relaxed? Yes, to make them stricter, to make them longer and stronger. These are called the sunset provisions. There are various restrictions that do expire, although proponents of the deal will say they are not things that actually affect Iran's ability to uh, to build a bomb if that's what it wanted to do. Is there a deadline for these negotiations to finish? Well, there no, there's not an official deadline. Conventional wisdom is that because Iran is having presidential elections in June, if some substantial progress has not been made, let alone an actual agreement, that that will give hardliners a boost in the elections where they already, I think, are considered the front runners. And so while there's likely to be a lot of rhetoric, I think that there will still be a disposition to get this deal done. Karen, what will you be looking for as these negotiations continue? Well, I think what everybody's looking for is specific action. If and when they come up with some of these simultaneous steps that they can take, what will the first steps be? You know, will it be Iran saying, okay, we'll go back from 60% enrichment to 20% enrichment? There's been some talk about maybe some interim steps. There's money frozen, Iranian money frozen all over the world from when Trump imposed sanctions on oil trade. As soon as we see something happen, some kind of exchange of steps that actually take place as opposed to just being talked about, it will be encouraging about the direction of the talks. Karen DeYoung is a national security reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Alexis Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. I will be out on Thursday, but my colleague Alexis Diao will be in the host seat. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.